So, hey, I'm here with Dr. Joan palmiter Bajorek. Am I pronouncing your name right or is it Bajorek or some other pronunciation? Yeah, in English it's Bajorek, but Bajorek. you're right to question all that. I usually joke that it's like palm budge. Like uh-huh. and it's a very long name, but yeah, it's uh, originally uh, from Bohemia, from Czech, from the Czech Republic. Are you serious? No, many generations ago, many, okay. many, many. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Um, uh, I lived in Prague, so in in oh, Bohemia. And now I'm in Brno, in Moravia. Um, but yeah, cool. Have you ever visited? I have. Yeah, yeah. I actually, it's so strange. I walked around in a blue scarf and a black coat. And like, I looked like everybody or like people kept asking me for directions. And I was like, oh yeah, my people are from here. You know, like blend in. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, So please, John, um, you know, I think you're very well known in the industry because of various things like Women in Voice and you're now with One Reach AI. But maybe could you give a bit of an introduction to yourself and say where you're where you've come from and what you've been up to and what you're doing now, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, greetings from Seattle. Um, my name is Joan. I am right. I'm the um, VP of product research at OneReach.ai. My previous background is in linguistics and Uh, academia. So I'm originally a linguist. Um, It's really early in my career as a linguist final P and acoustics. and was like, this is the future, like (laughs) all in, like at the time it was hard. Uh, People were like, don't touch that bad idea, difficult, but the research out of Stanford. So that was circa 2015. And from there, got my PhD in this field, speech language technology, and really seeing the future of multimodal interfaces um, from there, worked at Nuance as a senior um, senior conversation designer, whatever titles they use these days at Nuance, uh, and then worked at a digital agency, Versa, after that, um, and then several startups in my technical career on product, data, all the different things as our field evolves. Um, and as you mentioned, most people know me best for Women in Voice, which I bootstrapped starting in 2018 when I was like, where are the women? <laughs> where are the people of color? Like this field has such opportunity. Um, and especially with my research in, in bias and kind of how systems perform, like when we talk about optimal systems and I was like, wait a minute, these problems are interrelated. Oh, there's no women in the building. <laughs> I wish that were a joke, but it's real. Uh, and so building building women in voice to the, the size and scale it is today with over 20 chapters across the world um, in four years. And then my technical career in data and product and kind of translate, tra- translating that to storytelling. I would argue, like to be able to speak to larger audiences and, you know, all the public speaking that I do on different stages uh, as a public speaker um, and as influencer. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. That's a pretty good nutshell. <laughs> you, you've, you've done a lot and it's it's a lot of great stuff, like really, you know, fantastic work with Women in Voice and, you know, various stages of your career. And so now you're at One Reach and... Uh, I recently read uh, Age of Invisible Machines, which, of course, was written by Rob Wilson, the CEO of That's One right. Reach, right? Yeah. And um, yes. really incredible stuff. You know, it's what One Reach are working on. It, it feels very now. It's like at this stage in conversational AI where people see the potential and you know, without getting too much into into the nitty gritty, various applications of it so far have not worked so well, or um, people perhaps weren't bold enough. But 
one reach have got a very strong vision for where this can go right absolutely yeah i think age of invisible machines um which my ceo wrote i mean he's been like he and the co-founder have been bootstrapping this company for over a decade and we just raised private equity last year like you have to realize the the long-term vision that's got us here um of when we want to build these complexes how do we build them yeah. Right. This is not um, it's not a simple thing to do. And so the ability to be really flexible, really thoughtful, these complex systems that all the if else's um, that are built in a no code environment um, and just how fast like hyper automation. I love how people are like, what is even automation? And then we're hyper automation above that. Like we really um, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is how concrete there's a really abstract concepts that are talked about. And then they're like, okay, if you really wanted to implement this, here's what blockchain would look like, mm. you know, sending your uh, neighbor a thank you, like <laughs> very, very simple um, experiences. So I've been very much enjoying the book and we've gotten extremely positive feedback. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And I think um, some of the things you're touching on are definitely related to what I want to ask you about. So sure, before, sure, sure. Yeah. Before we go into that, <clears throat> I just love to throw out a few questions at the start, really just to get the ball rolling. So to get your personal perspective on three things, and I call it 30 seconds go, but of course, 30 seconds is great. If it's longer, whatever. Um, so can I give you the first, please? Let's go. Cool. Please, Joan, what's the most useful thing you use at work? Communication. Okay. One word answer. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, communication. I, I think that sums it up. Um, I love it so much that I'm I'm satisfied. <laughs> uh, question number two. How should a researcher approach their work? If you say, I'm very curious about this topic. I'd like to measure this and this. Whoa, the world can really expand for you and you'll see different things you weren't even prepared well, I guess you're prepared in, in the sense that you're curious, but there will always be things that should jump out to you and mm -hmm. surprise a researcher. If they're doing it incorrectly, it's, you know, potentially too predictable or you're trying to create what you already validate your own assumptions. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Please, number three, what does the term data mean to you? Data, data, data. Data is something measurable in a nutshell. Okay. Yes. Yes. I, I work with mostly quantitative data. So this is diff more difficult for qualitative data, but uh, in my, my world, it's mostly quantitative. Mm -hmm. yes. Okay, cool. I think you totally, uh, you, you knocked those out of the park. That's, that's boom, boom, boom. Great answers. <laughs> Thank cool. you. So uh, let's go into the, the, the proper interview, the full interview. Um, so what, I would really love to speak to you about is, you know, having read Age of Invisible Machines and these concepts of like hyper personalization, hyper automation. Um, we're looking at a situation where the, you know, everything's hyper, it's speeding up, where it's much faster uh, processes of creating things. And I think obviously user research is as with all conversational projects it has to be 
uh, a big part of what you know of our work because we have to understand user needs and so on so i really you know i really want to get into this with you because i think you're uh as i said when i reached out to you you're really one of the very few people in the world who can uh speak to this and give great insights so i'm super excited to have you here um so um when we're talking about you know generative ai which um i guess even that concept for most people is still quite new so we're talking about large language models and chat gpt and perhaps also the visual side like uh you know, the image creation tools and so on, like DALI and things. Um, so how would these emerging technologies like generative AI and conversational AI affect the work of experienced designers? Ooh, what a great question. Uh, okay, well, I think I just, I agree with you. I want to make sure that we understand because generative AI is just being thrown around and I really want to make sure people understand it as we translate it to the user experience. So, what we used to have and we still have is natural language processing. We're literally categorizing words. Yeah. And we almost all of us know about this a bit with predictive texting. You know, you, you put a few words in and it says, up, oh, I think I'm going to finish your sentence. Is this what you're planning to say? You've got this noun phrase, verb phrase, whatever. When we, that's natural language generation. We think we're going to generate what you might do next. Mm-hmm. Now, what we just seen recently is chat GPT where you put in, you know, write me an essay about Eleanor Roosevelt that's six pages long. Whoop, there we go. It appears, you know, the latency may not be ideal, but we've got this. And you mentioned Dolly, which we ask, I'd like a painting, you know, of myself on a horse. Oof, there's a painting of you on a horse. Uh, and so when we have these image generation, text generation, super sophisticated, like generating things, out of thin air, like this type of generative AI can be audio. Can be, I mean, we predicted and talked about, we've been predicting and talking about this for so long with these large language models and what you can do with just the sheer scale of these data sets yeah. is difficult for us to conceptualize. I really think that's the case. And so when you think about the user experience and you go, wait a minute, okay, futuristic, we can play with these games. How does this actually translate into systems we might use every day? And I think that translation, we a lot of people are still struggling with because, you know, I can make angel images. What am I going to do with them for yes. real? Yeah. You know, where is this actually going? Yeah. And so um, at one reach, we have been using GPT actually for years internally. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting to see predictive information when we, I mean, I could tell you all of the different things we do with uh, GPT already internally, but I think uh, what you're talking about also is, how is this iterating the user experience? Yeah. How does that translate from huge futuristic towards day-to-day? What are we doing? And although I love generative AI, I think one of the things we're most brilliant at is the speed of iterating the user experience. To look at the data, like this is one of my favorite things, Ben, is like I look at the data, my team and I make visualizations, and we go, whoa, we had this assumption Mm-hmm. Here's what the data is showing us in real time. This aggregate huge, the data set continues to grow. Here's how we can optimize it. Yeah. Like here's where we can move the needle for all these users. Like <laughs> you know, like millions of pings a day on these systems. And if we can move the needle 10% for all these users to have a better experience. Yeah. A, it's phenomenal. They love our systems, you know, CSAT scores, everything. Like, but it, it, the amount of money, I guess I'm always I was like, 
the system is performing well on several different metrics. Mm -hmm. And so that user experience, just a little bit better, actually, in my mind, is the huge differentiator that translating these fabulous systems into a system that's robust, that's enterprise grade. And I think that's where OneReach really shines is our experience in UX that comes to these really cutting edge systems. Yeah, well, it's it's super relevant, isn't it? Because, you know, there's so much excitement around, for example, GPT right now. Yeah. And everyone's in this sort of wow stage where they're like, sorry, cat's going, uh, in this <laughs> wow stage where they're like, you know, this is amazing. Exactly as you said, like I can generate angel pictures, but what do I do with them? And I think um, when there's all of this excitement where, you know, exactly as you say, we need to consider how this can actually improve the experience and what I think could be the real danger for people working in teams who embrace this technology is that suddenly everything feels out of their hands because everything's being generated all over the place. There's so much stuff being created and they can't really have an overview on basic like quality control as well as being aware of, you know, how it's meeting user needs. Um, Because that's one of the most dangerous things about these systems with large language models that, you know, black female researchers have been talking about for years, like warning, warning, (laughs) like when this spews out racist awfulness, when it spews out the wrong answer, right? Like just because these are powerful and will generate responses, what does that actually mean? Like I honestly sleep better at night knowing that Microsoft is investing in OpenAI because they have moderation. Yeah. Like how seriously and rigorously they like just looking at LinkedIn, for example, if people, if, if they see issues, they will curtail them. They have a team, like un, unlike Twitter, <laughs> our friends at Twitter, um, but just like there is robust taking care. Like there's an adult in the room, if yeah. you think about it that way. And I, I really appreciate that because these can go off the rails. Mm-hmm. It is very, very powerful what these systems can do. And so I think, it's literally the webinar uh, we designed that's happening, I think, probably after this comes out, or I'm not sure, um, but it's called Taming Generative AI, yeah. because we really think about this as a wild entity, yeah. like in the most true sense of that phrase. Yeah, I totally get you. It's um, it's it's like, it's extremely powerful in that it will absolutely dazzle you. And then... At the same time, you can I'm talking about ChatGPT, for example, yeah. um, and then suddenly it will come out with a response where you're like, "Wow, you don't get the basic fundamentals." You know, I've seen yeah. people give it maths challenges where it 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 can't calculate uh, how people's ages will uh, go in parallel over time, and it's approaching it like mm. some far more complex problem. Um, right. Well, and it's because it's not. It doesn't have. The same, just because it can generate text, it could be spilling out gobbledygook. Yeah. But it, because many of the responses look so human like, like it's being banned in schools here in the United States. I don't know if you've heard about this, but teachers are freaking out like, wait a minute, you could spew out a six you know, page essay? Like, uh oh, warning, warning. Whereas I think it's a tool, but because you might not know who is creating it. Like, I'm really jazzed or. Jazz and excited to see people um, publishing. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, written by Dr. Mitchell with GPT. Yeah. Like being cited as an author, which, you know, sparking a lot of debate in, in other senses. But 
I would recommend that you do cite that you're using these systems early. I don't, I don't know how you, you think about them, but we're really pushing the bounds of ethics in a lot of these discussions as well. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It's, I feel like this is a whole lovely, like, uh, (laughs) keep going, Ben, go stick to the questions. I'm down. I've only got you for so long. Um, so, uh, so what I would like to ask you, here's a very basic question, which I think there could be so much to say about, you know, I, you know, from my experience in user research, you uh, can create a generalized user persona, you know, like this is generally speaking, who we think we're targeting. However, if we're talking about hyper-personalization, which I think with the technology now this is something that's available to us and we really should aim for where we can basically create different bots for different folks you know so that each of their unique needs are being met that's a wonderful affordance of the technology so how how do we approach that is there a way that you do where you can have an overview of the various different uh bots that are speaking to each user individually yes i mean there are at least three examples i could give you that are currently in production um but i think what i also having conceptualized the field versus Mm -hmm. actually being at one reach what i used to think is that we literally had a ginormous dashboard and we're watching all the different users we're just like oh like you know here are these personas yeah. whereas what what is actually currently being deployed on a very very simplistic level is proactive and honestly we shock our users by doing this you call into a system we already have a lot of your data on file mm-hmm. we validate hey ben are you calling in about you know checking in about i don't know your uh food delivery whatever the case may be these proactive like we only know your phone number but we can match it on file. And suddenly the user's like, whoa, this is so personalized. Like I have this experience that knows me, right? Yeah. That's like very, very simplistic systems. We're actually making digital twins as well. So that we, for example, an HR example that you then continues to ask about his PTO, like constantly scheduling his vacations. Okay, we build this out and continue. Okay, last year you asked about this PTO. This year you asked about this. Like the user experiences this, you know, digital twin of theirs mm-hmm. that is iterative over time. So I, there's a, a third example I was thinking of as you're speaking, but I think this personalization may not be as difficult as we think it is. I know in in the book, Age of Invisible Machines, like Rob goes full force about what, how personalized it could be. And Kathy Pearl has been speaking about these for years, but really I think there's an incremental personalization that is beyond the system knows me as soon as I speak, yeah. which I believe <laughs> exists as well um, in, in, in many capacities. But you know what I mean? I think there's something between all and nothing in yeah. these personalizations. That that seems like a really sound approach to um, you know because as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, it it makes sense that we can still have a consistent bot persona where mm-hmm. it's it is uh, essentially the same bot that's speaking to everybody. It's just it knows each user as an individual user. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Well, and this is my joke is minimum viable product 
the smallest little step forward, concrete, yeah. practical, because in a few years, what these systems will be able to do and will be normalized to expect that of these systems. Yeah. Like the expectations of our customers were like, okay, all right. You're, like, especially with the book, we're on a different page yeah. to be able to build these things for them. So it's a really exciting moment. No, absolutely. Even, you know, as you're describing this, that people will call in and the bot knows, uh, appears to know them quite well. The first time it probably yes. feels like some kind of magic. And then it they does. It. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And they're like, why, why isn't this by default? Yeah. Why do I have to call a different system or, you know, ask a different system and they don't do that for me? Wait yeah. a minute. Like this is old, you know, yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's cool stuff. Um, so Another aspect of this would be, you know, we're talking about having data about the user, which is perhaps like uh, their PI, like their personally, mm-hmm. personal identity. I can't actually remember what the acronym stands for, but it's basically their ID. Mm-hmm. ID. Um, but of course, each person, even as I'm talking now, I'm, I'm expressing my idiolect and my, my own unique way of talking and getting lost and tongue-tied. And uh we each have our own unique modes of expression and personalities. Can yes. we adapt bots to speak to that, to speak to each, even perhaps uh, each individual's pace of talking or, or mm-hmm. you know, these aspects? How much can yeah. we personalize that? Specifically mimicking prosody, dialect, is that what you're speaking to? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know on... There's been, you know, uh, Amazon and Google systems might whisper back to you. Have you seen this feature where it can tell the vault, like how much output you're, you know, I haven't actually seen a lot of systems who start mimicking back to you, your own dialect, your own pace of speech. I think these would be very interesting to build. I did see a research study though, about people caring quite a bit about what accent was speaking back to them. I don't know if you've seen some early research about these robots that like, oh, it speaks my accent back to me. Oh, it speaks British English back to me. Oh, it speaks Australian English back to me. And how well they perceived the system to do at the survey at the end. Okay. And like people strongly preferring it matching their yeah. dialect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if it's exact same flows, we're sending them down. Mm-hmm. Again, back to that personalization. Wow, that, that matches me. The system like sees me in a way. Um, so yeah, I haven't seen those in deployment, but they can be built for sure. Yeah, totally. I feel like um, it, it's a whole area that could be explored, whether there's a great deal of value in it. I don't know. Perhaps from an ac- yeah. accessibility standpoint, it could be very useful. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, so when, you know, when we're speaking about hyper-personalized designs and user research and you were describing in your work literally having a screen where you can (laughs) monitor the data which I would so much love to see (laughs) Um, where you can see how you know people are progressing within within their interactions with your bots Um, what's the best approach to act on these insights and data oh oh gracious what a question is the best approach i think knowing your own data it would be i guess an increment or oh i wish i had a very sophisticated answer for you but usually what i'm working with with uh, today's uh, repertoire uh collecting the data i've, I've worked certainly on, on other projects not not here at one reach where i'm like 
we didn't even collect that. Like, oh no, like let's start tomorrow by even collecting that data point. Um, looking at it on different time scales. I think one of my favorite recent projects is I talked to a customer about, uh, I'm pretty sure we can optimize this better. I've seen your system. I've seen the data, you know, output. I think we can do better than this. Uh, let's look like, how do you measure your own data? Um, they use SQL to, to query theirs. And here's the different, they literally gave me the TXT export of what their, their teams are analyzing. Okay. And so I really can understand bird's eye view to really narrowing down from the entire system, as you mentioned, this like dashboard of performance on like maybe a few numbers and then like, okay, we had an error. What happened there? We narrow down to the ex- like very specific example. And you're right with PII, we got to be very gentle. <laughs> you know, we don't exactly care about, you know, Rachel's experience, but we do want to know where did we make that mistake? Is that mistake replicated through the system? Is that a broader problem or was that N of one? Was that really just, oh, <laughs> broke down with Rachel. Here's why, you know, we move on. And so I think um, that honestly goes back to your earlier question about researchers and leading with curiosity. You know, what are we measuring? What is the research question? And as you also mentioned, like, just because we can build the system, does it really move the needle? Does that really transform the user experience? And if it does, and there's ROI, we should implement that. Like, let's let's make it happen. But on, I think on an aggregate level, I, I love just seeing things in time scales as we can make them bigger and better. And that kind of, yeah, my team talks about the, the bird's eye view versus the very, very nitty gritty on the ground yeah, individual sure. data point. Yeah. I think that's quite magical, frankly. No, totally, <laughs> totally. It's like micro and macro or telescope exactly. and microscope. Yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, it's it is quite magical. It's you know um, as a researcher, I mean that's what we dream of, like these ginormous data sets we can process. Yeah, you know, totally, yeah. totally. And so, you know, as you know, my understanding, and I'm basing this all on my assumptions from from my research, from reading the book, and so on. Yeah, that you know, you're working to a, a faster beat. You know, it's more agile than agile. It's yeah. rapid development. So you've got these analytics coming in where you have a, a kind of general understanding of how the conversations are going and then probably some little red flags coming up because we always have them in conversational <laughs> AI, right? Where it's oh, yeah. like, okay, uh, here's where they're getting stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly would you want to act on that? Like, do you... How many questions would you, uh, I feel like this is too general, but I'll continue. How many questions are you asking when that comes in? Because, of course, uh, you you want to be quick, right? You want to be more agile than agile. But then, of course, you don't want to just be uh, accentuating a problem by rapidly working on it without fully understanding it. Where is that happy medium? Like, uh, what, what would you recommend for that? Yeah, that was such a great question. And I it really, right now what I'm seeing is on different projects, there's completely different protocols about how sensitive and how fast some companies want to move. We have one client that's like, I like where we are. We're in a stable place. Like, oh, we see a problem. Let's talk about that in the next meeting. Yeah. Like I, there's a trust that the system is stable enough. There's another client we have who's so nervous and reactive. And I, I, as soon as we see a problem, we like, what's the fastest, you know, 
we can fix that problem. Yeah. Um, so I think, and frankly, I really prefer the um, and a first approach that we tr- like the system is stable, mm-hmm. that we we absolutely can optimize. There will, in theory, there should always be opportunity to optimize. But I think the um, we build in like trying to figure out what, what I'm allowed to say publicly. We build in systems that check. Rob talks about this in the book that ideally the system is constantly checking itself. It's like my home security system. It sends pings through the entire IOT system to make sure even when I'm not worried about it, that it's working and it'll send me like, Oh, this IOT, there's a glitch with this one. Please check the camera. You know, like all these different things in in our systems too. We have uh, checks and balances to make sure that they're performing well. Um, But they're ginormous, robust systems. I mean, (laughs) like how complicated they are. Uh, Keeping them all maintained is no joke of a of a project. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's the bizarre thing that we're working with, where we have almost maximum complexity on the back end, and for the user, it should feel exactly. natural and fluid, and just like our conversation now, you know, just uh, here's what I'm thinking. Let's talk about it, and you know, uh, make it actual, make something happen. Yeah. And that's when I worked at Nuance, I couldn't believe the backends. I was just like, this is really the backend of an enterprise, like complex, hairy, if else's and, you know, like, like all these different people working in different parts. It's like a ginormous steam engine or something like each part of everyone's working on different parts of the system. And, and to know, right. That, as you mentioned, the user experience is quite small, yeah. quite sleek in theory, like, uh, what you see, like what, what the UI actually is with user experience and like <laughs> the cacophony of the back end. So, um, and, and then I would argue that's one of the reasons you need a one reach.ai type platform is to actually build these and maintain them. Yeah. That's an enterprise grade, you know, whatever it is that's HIPAA compliant, etc. So yeah, no joke on the tooling. No, totally. totally. <laughs> exactly as you say. Yeah, to monitor it and um, yeah, keep keep on top of uh, everything that's that's happening. And as it's iterating, it's yeah, it's it's a hard task. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not in the questions, but I feel that you're able to just bat these away. So I'm going to throw one at you. Um, just related sure. to teams, because you were speaking about it, that you were comparing these two teams where one takes their time, analyzes the data and decides how they're going to move. And the other one is much more like reactive and like, well, you know, we need to deal with that. So where, where do you see user research fitting within teams in hyper automation? Like, um, is, have you got any recommendations for best practice from what you've seen in, in companies beyond uh don't be too sensitive and don't you know like it, it's good to take your time and really uh consider and rationalize your next move oh, gracious best ux best recommendations i feel like you got to talk to rebecca evan for that one uh in my experience i honestly think it would lead back to that curiosity question of we think we know the persona we think we know a lot about what's going to happen in these systems documenting what we think is going to be happening, checking it against the real data. We think a lot of users are using this. Actually, they prefer this. This is what we're actually seeing in the system. We may want to build out these flows. I think user experience and user research needs to, is iterative. <laughs> like you, you have to keep it in mind. Mm-hmm. And, 
I would joke as a researcher, keeps me gamefully employed. Uh, but really, when we can move the needle, when the user experience and the ROI are directly connected, you know, companies are really eager to support users in a completely different way. I think that's one of the things I've actually been across many projects that I've done of this you know, scale. People pay for, okay, optimize it. I want this. I want this dollar sign, dollar sign. When, it, when it's actually deployed, they go, wait a minute, the user experience, like, oof, I really want this tweaked. I want that. Like how fast those come in succession again and again and again is wild to me. And so I think I would recommend in a best practice world is that the build team is ready for that. Yeah. They themselves are not reactive to, oh, shoot, should we measure like CSAT scores and, you know, like <laughs> NPS, like let's really have that by default ready for our client so that they're thrilled when I come in and say, Hey, I love this. The numbers we're seeing. I think we can do better performing against these other numbers that I see. Here's where I think we could. Are you comfortable with having that conversation about how we can all do better? Um, usually is well-received. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, I feel, uh, you know, this is as long as I asked to, to keep you for, for this interview. So, <laughs> Um, John, it's been totally brilliant. Like, uh, I, I love what you're doing and, um, these insights are utterly fantastic. I feel like this is going to be very useful for people because this, I'm sure I'm not the only person asking how are, you know, how are our methods going to change, uh, as we embrace hyper automation. So thank you yeah. so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, cool. Have a great day. You as well. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>